Welcome to Identity Inside Out. Getting ID Right. A special InnovationOz.com podcast series brought to you by SailPoint. The last two years have seen unparalleled forces drive change. The setting of an unprecedented stage for a work-from-anywhere culture, coupled with an equal evolution of digital services and an ever-evolving, sophisticated cyber threat landscape. The corresponding response to this shift has been a continued focus on complying with the ASD Essential 8 and amendments to the Critical Infrastructure Act, imposing tighter guidelines and increasing cybersecurity requirements. While technology is an enabler, focus is renewed on facilitating change without impact. In this podcast series, we explore the controversies, perils, and opportunities that face industry in the midst of change, and how the organizations today are going to secure their virtual borders against the attacks of tomorrow. Welcome to Identity Inside and Out, Getting ID Right, an innovationoz.com podcast series with SailPoint. In today's episode, Connected Infrastructure, I'm talking to Claire Pales, who's the Director of the Secure Board, and Gary Savarino, Identity Strategist at SailPoint. Welcome to both of you. Okay, today we're talking about uh, connected uh, critical infrastructure and connected devices, which, whilst providing huge benefits, is also pro- creating a very wild and woolly environment when we're trying to secure our organisations. There's been a lot of discussion about recent changes to the critical infrastructure legislation, which really is now encompassing many more organisations who are uh, really bound by law now to make sure that they are treating their critical infrastructure environments um, as, you know, a very important priority from a cyber perspective. So welcome to both of you for what I am sure is going to be a very interesting conversation, Gary and Claire. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Kari. So there's been a lot of talk about this legislation, and I think the first thing is it's very broad and there's lots of things in there. And when we talk now about what was covered by critical uh, infrastructure legislation, we saw particularly through the pandemic that people understood exactly how fragile supply chains were and what those little critical slivers look like in those you know, in, in lots of areas, and um, that could be anywhere from retail to health, et cetera. I might start with you, Gary. Have, have the conversations that you're having changed since COVID? Yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, I guess, you know, what, what COVID has really done is it's it's transformed everyone's lives, not, uh, you know, just for the reasons that, you know, we're aware of, but also from a technology perspective, um, you know, organisations, uh, you know, response to uh, the pandemic uh, was was immediate. We saw uh, an immediately uh, transformed workforce overnight, uh, offices locked down and people confined to working from home. So organisations had to respond to that. They had to maintain their, their productivity and business continuity and sought all sorts of ways, uh, you know, particularly from a technology perspective, to enable that workforce. And, Claire, obviously, you know, boards um, and, you know, you know IT and, and cyber leadership really were dealing with a rapidly changing environment. Do you think um, when it, there's been lots of obviously talk over many years about whether boards really understand what risk looks like? Um, has that kept pace? Have we had a a quickening of understanding in terms of what risk might look like in this newer environment? I think there's many, the the challenge we've got is that every board is different and every organisation is different and the context of that for each business changes every day. 
And what we've seen, I guess, over the last two years and very much so in the last few months is organisations seeing what's, what other businesses are doing and asking questions around, are we, are we covered for that? You know, are we exposed to that? And rushing to remote workforces and not sure whether those people are going to come back or not. So there's lots and lots of moving parts at the moment for boards and trying to get their head around just that has been a challenge. And then the new legislation, in some instances, I haven't seen boards really pricking their ears up and wondering if they're a part of it or not because there is so much else going on. But also we continue to see cybersecurity leaders or CIOs, whoever's responsible for cyber risk, not getting enough time in front of the board for the board to ask questions if they've got them. So getting cyber onto these agendas of boards and audit and risk committees even on a more regular basis would allow for the conversation to unfold more. But what we're really seeing with boards are a lot of them are still asking the 101 questions around, are we secure? You know, should we pay the ransom? What's our cyber insurance covering us for? Those types of questions and probably not enough of the questions around these new legislative changes that are happening because that's that's another step ahead, I think, in, in some cases. It's interesting, is it? So it's designed, I guess, to put, um, to reframe how we think about critical infrastructure and pretty, I guess, sort of challenge people to think about their role, you know, in supply chains and the ecosystem. But it, it's probably a slow burn for that those pennies to drop from the sounds of it. Yeah, I think so. And the, the original group of critical infrastructure providers who were part of the legislation before the changes are well-versed in managing critical infrastructure risk, not just cyber risk, but all sorts of risk, floods and fires and interruptions and and supply chain issues when it comes to critical infrastructure at ports or in electricity companies. But when you now look at the the, the expanded list out to 11, some of those groups like universities or retailers, it might be not as easy for them to understand whether or not they're covered and to get themselves to a level where they feel comfortable um, is probably going to need external advice, probably external legal advice for them to really get an understanding of are we part of this legislation and if we are, then what changes do we need to make over a period of time to make sure that we're comfortable that we're meeting the expectations of the legislation. It's it's quite a complex conversation to be having, especially for organisations that before would, would never have considered themselves as critical infrastructure. but. Moving through the pandemic, obviously, we found that they were critical and that can change as well. In some states where we have floods and fires and other states we don't, some of those providers might become critical, whereas in other states they're not. So it it really is a challenge, I think, not only for boards but for, for management to work out where to make these investments. It's a really interesting point. And so, Gary, I know a lot of your work over the years has been in the financial services sector where people understand the implications of um, you know, financial services, you know, not being taken offline if we're not able to bank. And then um, to the other extreme, like, is toilet paper critical? And we saw people getting very nervous about, you know, that that was a real wake-up call in terms of thinking around what is critical in terms of how many days supply of food or obviously the water and you've mentioned sort of the natural disasters as well as part of that mix but um there's have, have you seen Gary any of that kind of transfer of some of the maturity or the learnings from the financial services sector and some of that earlier legislation and how people are kind of reframing it with you know what we're seeing now critical infrastructure 
Yeah, a- a- absolutely. I guess, you know, from our experiences, um, you know, financial services uh, in Australia has uh, really kind of, um, uh, you know, adopted a level of maturity that's similar to other financial services organisations globally. Um, and, and a lot of that was due to the introduction of SOX compliance back in 2002, implementing those, those better controls uh, around who has access to what uh, in those organisations, in particular financial systems and, you know, being able to prevent fraud as well. Um, you know, but what we've seen is whilst, uh, you know, financial services were probably some of the earliest adopters of, uh, you know, strict controls and security, in particular around identity, um, what we have seen uh, also through the expanded list of 11, uh, you know, that now fall under the security critical infrastructure, um, like healthcare, uh, for example, uh, the maturity levels aren't uh, at the same level as financial services. As an example, there's been some common sentiment among some groups that we've been discussing the topic with that, um, you know, healthcare, as an example, is 10 to 15 years behind uh, in terms of technology and maturity and security um, behind that of financial services. That's a big gap if you're talking about like making up ground and keeping pace with the changes in the way that healthcare is delivered. But that is, Claire, do you see that there's certain industries where they're paying catch up and as well as just having an incredibly changed environment over the past few years? Yeah, and, and I think to add, add to what Gary said around financial services, firstly, that not all financial services companies are, are, are regulated. And so APRA has a small group that are regulated, but then there are thousands of other smaller financial services organisations who don't have the pressure of regulation and are also trying to catch up because they are in the supply chain often of the bigger fin services companies. And with the pressure of the APRA regulation a few years ago and the supply chain or third-party risk management lens, they have had to try to catch up as well. So it's within financial services that the catch-up is happening. But also from a healthcare perspective, I've certainly seen peer CISOs of mine in the industry be employed by healthcare service providers. We've seen not-for-profits start to really focus on um, the healthcare information they might be collecting and how do they get the right resources inside their organisation who can focus on that as well. But they have to be risk-based investments. And so that needs to look through things like budgets and where you're going to spend that money and borrowing from one area that might be um, really important for you to spend money on in order to put it into cyber as well. So it it is going to be a slow burn and organisations will play catch up. The point is we want to see them waking up to it and and having a focus on it. Even if it's a slow burn, it's better than sort of thinking that it won't happen to them. This is obviously very top of mind this week. Australia has had um, some very high-profile um, breaches in recent weeks. Um, I was talking to someone in Singapore yesterday that says Australia's not alone. There's a, a hospital in India as we speak who is that's using paper and pen. Um, like it's every country is having its own very high profile and disruptive um, uh, breaches. And and with that, if you just have to listen to Breakfast Radio, the the ripple effect that it's causing from a social perspective is actually quite profound. You know, we, we heard this morning that there was, has been more information released onto the dark web, people feeling very vulnerable. How does that, if from a board perspective particularly, Claire, do people now understand that when you're talking about risk, the risk is greater than financial, it's now a whole kind of social ripple effect that's actually reframing these challenges when it comes to kind of elevating the discussion. Definitely. We're seeing at a board level a a couple of things in in relation to that question. One is that a lot of boards 
think that if they buy cyber insurance, then the financial support that cyber insurance will give them will get them help, hopefully out of the situation that they might be in mm-hmm. from a cyber incident perspective. There are other boards that think that the only cost of a cyber incident is to pay a ransom. And so if they don't pay the ransom, then the costs of mopping up will be minimal. And we know that that's definitely not the case. And also not every cyber incident is a ransomware or, or involves a ransom demand. So from a, um, a cost perspective, there are so many costs involved in mopping up a cybersecurity incident. And we really want to see boards to realise that that investment um, needs to be thought through in a, in a much bigger way than just buying an insurance product and, and hoping that that will be the, the, the solution to all of their problems. Um, from a community perspective, we're definitely seeing people now much, much more aware. I'm quite fearful, I think, of the data that might have been disclosed about them, certainly the health data that we've seen, but also driver's licence and passport. So um, I was talking to someone last week about um, ESG, so Environment, Social governance and where data security fits inside that and it it sits inside if you if you think about the regular frameworks it sits inside the social under the s but it could also just as easily sit under governance and and from a board perspective should be but the social implications of a data breach go far beyond just the loss of a driver's license um, or the health data we saw with colonial pipeline People couldn't go places. You know, there was no petrol in, along that um, coastal area of America last year. So the social implications of not being able to drive places, not being able to fuel ambulances and taxis, and, you know, it, it's that impact as well as the personal data that people might have been impacted by. And we may see that also move into things like water um, supply chain, electricity supply chain. The, the social implications of that could be incredible. Mm-hmm. And even another aspect of the social, um, and Gary, keen for your thoughts here as well, is just even if you look generationally at the number of people who weren't born as digital natives who often find kind of online environments quite daunting anyway and then compound that with the sense that, you know, information's been stolen and, you know, you really are dealing, you can see a real kind of bifurcation, if you like, of people who um, would be disproportionately affected by an environment that is kind of host- hostile because of this stuff. So I think I think we see have a real feeling about that in in this country right now. Yeah, a- absolutely. I, I guess um, you know through you know my conversations with uh, you know different individuals throughout these organisations potentially that have been impacted by the breaches. Um, it's interesting to hear the feedback on the uh, the response from the various generations. Uh, you know, the, the older generations are, you know, not digital natives. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot more concern around their data, what it means, uh, what it means for them personally and also from a social perspective. But, uh, you know, on the flip side of that, the, the, the younger generations, the digital natives, um, I guess, you know, in line with how much information they're, they're putting out there about themselves anyway, there's less concern uh, for them, which I think is a bit of a, a, an interesting mm. mix, uh, you know, and how to appease, I guess, uh, you know, all of those that, you know, have been affected by some of the largest data breaches we've had. Can we go back to some of the more practical elements? Because we know, I mean, you've mentioned some of the um, natural disasters, Claire, the floods and fires, and we're talking about critical infrastructure. Um, and, and we now know that all of this sort of connectedness and ability for sensors and IoT devices and this sort of generation of huge amounts of insight, but also 
we're now like in terms of the the fabric with which there are areas to be you know entered by bad actors we're now talking like about a dramatically different landscape so um the signal to noise both in terms of things that are important for managing critical assets but secondly you know the skills crisis in this country at a time where it sounds like it's more important than ever those cyber skills are at an absolute premium so how are we seeing the balance between you know the technology that's able to kind of use the people skills where the the noise is or the signal is that needs the attention yeah i i can see that a lot of organizations might put their thoughts and their investment now into technology to try to help them to detect monitor their systems and detect if there are issues. And the problem with that is that we need people, as you just mentioned, sitting on the other end of those technologies. So logging and monitoring and automation and and getting technology to do some of the heavy lifting for us is a good investment as long as we've got people inside our organisation that can view that information and work out whether and what, what it means essentially and not just put tech in place and hope that it will save us and it will do the job that you know, that we're sold it will do. So I feel like there's an opportunity to slow down a little bit, take a deep breath, not panic about what's going on within Australia and, and globally. And it's been going on globally for a long time. I think we've just seen a, a big flurry of activity here in Australia and it has made people really concerned. So if we could slow down the thinking a little bit and, and take a deep breath and look inside our organisations at what are we trying to protect? What What is our critical information what level of sensitivity is that information where is that information and how do we understand who's got access to it as well making sure we've got a really thorough view of that and then working out how we're going to protect it and if it is in places we don't want it to be if it's overseas or if it's with third parties that we we don't have a trusted relationship with how are we going to call that information back and make sure that it's secure so I think people shouldn't move too rapidly and shouldn't make too many rash decisions right now. We need to make sure that we're thinking this through and having really robust conversations about what data have we got and why do we have it, where is it, who's got access to it, and then putting together a, a very clear plan that involves technology but also involves some pretty serious people change management to protect that information and know where it is and, and who's got access to it. I think the other piece around the skills crisis is probably a bigger conversation for another day, but there are very clear areas um, within cybersecurity where we're lacking the skills and we're trying, I think, to bring people through universities, but there's also an opportunity for people within organisations to learn more about this topic and lift their cyber literacy rather than us just looking at the cybersecurity team or the information security team as the people who will save the business, everybody in the business, including the board, need to lift their literacy on this topic. And it's not just reading one book or doing one course. This is an ongoing activity that organisations need to invest in. I, I'm going to come to you in a sec, Gary, but I just on that point I find it fascinating. We um, were speaking to someone from Box Hill TAFE the other day and I always kind of thought Box Hill TAFE because they're quite, um, you know, vocational in that cyber stream but the interesting thing was it wasn't actually people doing cyber and then going to be cyber professionals it was people doing being exposed to cyber and then going working in a wide range of businesses where they took some exposure into those businesses and that was what was actually creating the uplift so to your point just more people 
with and against micro credentialing that have yeah uh, definitely Gary, sorry uh, Gary just coming to you and I think Claire makes an excellent point about where we get the kind of the human um uh, the human and the technology working together that we're really using the best of both. Um, that's obviously something that you see it being implemented, you know, daily. Are there any kind of tips or recommendations or observations that you've seen about companies that have really maximised their people um, and then and use the technology in a really smart way? Yeah, a- absolutely. Firstly, Claire, I think some of that's that what you just said, some of those, the best advice I've ever heard on how we're really, you know, to tackle the, the current landscape there. So very, very considered and, and uh, very well uh, spoken there on that topic. I think I couldn't agree more with one particular fact uh, around people, you know, and, and, you know, from a technology perspective, we're engaging with organization. I think this is very common, uh, you know, for, for a lot of organizations that, that are selling technology uh, to, to their end customers is that technology is not a silver bullet to address a, a problem. Um, you know, it wholeheartedly relies on people to be able to do something with it. Um, so it is about the investment in the people as well. And of course, we have seen, uh, you know, a bit of a, a gap in, in the skills uh, around cybersecurity in particular uh, today. Um, and, uh, you know, welcome uh, any, uh, you know, investment in that area from, you know, organizations and government uh, as well in terms of upskilling, um, you know, the, the community to become more cyber aware as well. Um, you know, when we're working with organizations, you know, a big part of what we do is to ensure that there is that that literacy around, you know, the technology that, that we're talking about uh, and making sure that, you know, at least we have an ability to be able to educate our customers on the, on the you know, I guess the, the most efficient and proper use of that technology and how to best uh, implement that and protect uh, as well. I think as, um, as uh, vendors or, you know, being one of the vendors in the cybersecurity space, I think there is almost a responsibility on our part uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, it's more more than just selling a solution. It is about ensuring that, you know, the, the customers that we do engage with uh, have a clear path uh, in, in order to get value out of that investment and that it is going to, you know, uh, add that layer of protection that they're looking for as well. So almost, uh, I'll say a corporate responsibility on our part uh, as vendors to make sure that uh, that uh, the organizations that we are working with uh, do get uh, the value and I guess that, you know, that, that promise of what the technology is for. But again, uh, you know, if there isn't the, the investment on the other side as well in terms of people uh, and being able to, you know, continue to work with the technology. Um, you know, it's the old problem of people, present technology. They do need to work together. So we're rounding out a year, like we're crashing, um, you know, into 2023. Can I just get a sense from you? Based, it seems to be a bit of very busy year this year in terms of it's the first year really where we've sort of started to see sort of a return to something a bit more um, stable after COVID in terms of work, how people are working, all the things we talked about, about um, re-examining how we think about critical infrastructure um, and supply chains and all of those things. What we're, what's, what are we thinking about is, is the next phase when we're talking about securing our organisations. Like we've had a very real threat in the recent months. We've had big picture kind of changes to the way we, we live and work. What do you, you know, Claire, from what you're seeing in terms of obviously there's a bit of catch-up to do in some pockets of the sorts of organisations you're working with, others are more mature than, than others, but where are we headed, do you think? Where, what's what's in store for the next six to 12 months? Well, I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> um, so what I'd like to see, 
over the next six to 12 months is organisations, as I mentioned before, really taking a deep breath on this topic and making some time for it, not paying lip service to it, not asking small questions throughout the year or signing off a strategy and then hoping that that gets delivered, but really building cyber into the fabric of how people do business. And I know that probably sounds like a bit of a cliche, but we've built safety in, you know, we've spent the last 20 or 30 years really building safety into organisations. You wouldn't watch somebody walk onto a building site these days without a hard hat and steel cap boots. Cyber is so virtual and so difficult for people to understand because you can't see it, it's not tangible, but we can certainly see the tangible impacts of a cybersecurity incident or or an event the way that we've seen them in in the last few months. So, I would like to see in the coming 12 months people having many more, many more conversations about cybersecurity and that's uncomfortable. You know, it's uncomfortable to talk about events that have happened or someone who's clicked on a phishing link and caused an issue to happen or somebody who's left the the gate open as, as people are using that term at the moment. It's not an easy conversation to have, but if we start to normalise that over the next 12 months because it's normal in other countries to be having these conversations, because that's what they're used to. So let's really try in Australia to have a look at where can we inject these conversations? How can we bring cyber further forward in the process and for it not to be an afterthought? And, you know, personally, Anna Libel, who's my business partner and I, we have a real mission um, and a vision that we want boards, everyone on boards to start having an ongoing cybersecurity conversation. We really want it to not be twice a year or you know, someone who stands up at a town hall or a strategy day once, but it to be an ongoing conversation for boards. That that idea that, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Look, get everybody talking about this subject. Get everybody aware and so that it's not just a handful of people that um, we're grappling to, to share skills of in the cybersecurity industry trying to manage it, but it's everybody. You know, we wouldn't say, well, safety's not your responsibility or the budget's not your responsibility. It, Everybody takes responsibility for other parts of organisational um, operations and cyber needs to become just like that, a, a way of doing business for um, organisations in Australia. Gary, before I come to you, I just have another question, Claire, because completely accept that it, it needs to be everybody's challenge. But in, from a board perspective, does that director's liability, has that not made people kind of really hypervigilant to where their exposure might be on boards? Is that... Yes, and I think joining boards is a is has become a more scary proposition um, over the last few years or few decades as new things come into play. So, in the past, you could be a board director and have come from an accounting background or a legal background, or even as a CEO or operations, and bring a wealth of knowledge to your seat as a director. But these days, we've got climate change, we've got modern slavery, we've got cyber. There are so many new challenges for directors that they have to learn about. They can't bring 20 years of operational experience to the table on this topic. And if they can, chances are there are other areas of their their skill sets that won't meet what a director um, needs. So I feel like it's, um, it is a scary uh, proposition, I think, for some people to move into the boardroom now who maybe don't have that, that skill set. But every director has the responsibility to have the skills that they need and over time will build that experience. So I, I understand what you're saying, but to be a director in, in these kind of modern times, 
there are more than just balance sheets and legal liability, mm. um, performance and solvency to be worried about. Um, there are climate change and cyber, which have performance and solvency issues about them, and that's where the director's mindset should be at. But they, they need um, a bit more information to manage cyber risk than they do to manage maybe the financial risks that, that they're used to. It's a very interesting conversation. It's a, it, like it's a dramatically changed environment and there's you know, lots to, to keep up. Gary, over to you. What, what do you think we'll see or what would you like to see in the next 12 months or so? Yeah, I guess firstly, the the one thing I really strongly agree with that, that Claire mentioned there was around the, you know, the normalization uh, of, of cybersecurity just becoming part of the conversation. When we think technology, um, you know, where is, uh, where is the fit or where does cyber come into play as, as part of any technology initiative uh, within organizations? Um, you know, thinking back to many years ago when I was involved, uh, you know, more from a, you know, hands on the, uh, hands on, on the, on the keyboard technology perspective. Um, you know, any business initiative that, that we worked on had the standard, what is your disaster recovery plan? What is your high availability around this? Um, and, uh, you know, they, you know, they were introduced over time as well as organizations started to experience issues with their services. Um, so it took some time for those things to become normalized. And I think we're absolutely at the point. Uh, well past the point, in fact, where um, cyber needs to become part of the the same, you know, needs to be another step in that process of any business initiative or onboarding onboarding any new technologies uh, within the, into an organisation. Uh, so I think moving into the future, I'll absolutely, you know, next six to twelve months, um, there's definitely a lot of conversation uh, around cybersecurity uh, and what that means. Uh, of course, where uh, where We've seen already a huge uplift in the number of conversations we're having uh, with that expanded sp scope of, of organisations that fall on security critical infrastructure as well, uh, and we'll no doubt start to see um, you know those conversations turn into high maturity levels uh, for a lot of those organisations as well. Um, you know, I, I don't think we're at the end of seeing what you know breaches can do uh for organizations uh you know the the latest uh, australian cybersecurity data breach report indicates that you know <laughs> we're definitely not in the clear uh somewhere in the vicinity of uh, 60 uh, 76 thousand uh breaches uh in the last uh 12 months as well uh for the period of 2021 20, to 22 um so we're going to continue to see those those increases occur. Uh, the increase also uh, indicating we're seeing a, a breach reported every eight minutes. Uh, sorry, every seven minutes, uh, up from every eight minutes in the in the previous year as well. Um, so we will start seeing more and more of those conversations, more and more awareness around that, and, and hopefully, uh, you know, the the conversation uh, around cybersecurity just becomes part of standard business process as well. You must be like this about the board stuff for years and years, and it kind of seems to move, and it doesn't, and it seems to move. It's a, it's a, a it's a long road, isn't it? I think they've just got a lot on their plates as well. Like mm -hmm. personally, I wish they would be talking about cyber a lot, but they've got so many other plates spinning as a director, and some of them are on multiple boards, which is the other yeah. challenge: is that they're they're trying to think through what does cyber mean on this telco board I'm on, and then what does cyber mean on this university board I'm on or the, the you know soccer team board I'm on or you know there's they have to be thinking through cyber risk at so many different levels and in different ways and for new directors that can be quite daunting I think but also for directors who have been around for a long time who 
maybe feel like they've only got a few years left and why would they bother? <laughs> so, you know, we're, it's it, it's across the whole gamut of different types and styles of directors that we're seeing mm-hmm. a different level of concern. So I think that there are definitely challenges for directors now and, you know, at, at the moment I'm not on any boards right, because I, I advise so many boards. I, I, I'm i not ready, I don't think, <laughs> for, for that level of responsibility. Um, but Anna's on two boards and it's... The, the conversations are really complex. Can I ask, this is an off-the-record cop like this, I'm just curious because <clears throat> I'm not sure if it's a feature of the way that the previous government worked, but I always feel like anything I've ever seen of home affairs trying to do anything ed- educationally around the critical infrastructure stuff seems tortured and bad. It's <laughs> like, like if, if you're doing a wholesale change management type piece which effectively that critical infrastructure legislation needs to be like it's so big and unwieldy and but i just don't see that the government under what being able to effectively prosecute the risk to benefit the what does it mean for me like i think there's been a few dusty town halls with some mid-level bureaucrats that could basically read from the legislation i'm being unkind but it is not a massive opportunity for collaboration it is and and i think before they released in fact i know before they released the legislation um or or into parliament as a bill there was a lot of public consultation and industry consultation but i don't necessarily feel like all the people had a voice and there's also just a big challenge around how many organizations now fall under that legislation because before, when it was just the four, as I, as I mentioned before, it was kind of ports and water and electricity and those okay. types of groups. Yeah. Now to think that, you know, like um, companies that might retail, I don't know, plumbing um, tools or plumbing supplies in Queensland in the middle of a flood, they are critical infrastructure. Those shops need to open so people can get sandbags and pipes and, you know, those types mm-hmm. of things. But in in the middle of Perth, where they might not really need to be open, like is that critical? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's mm, a yeah. it's a very complex piece of legislation. <laughs> and um, if I think about how APRA have done things, they've deliberately kept CPS two three four, for example, quite vague, because if they're prescriptive, it moves too fast. So, mm. yeah, uh, Gary, I'm interested in your yeah, definitely. N- no, no, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think there is that level of vagueness, and you know, the line about you know, you know, seek and your own uh, legal advice for consultation to see if, if this applies to you. I mean, where does that leave organisations? As you mentioned, I mean, you know, a plumbing store in in Brisbane in the middle of a flood versus one in WA or in in, in Perth with yeah, they're, they're two different things, and they're facing. completely different operating requirements so uh yeah i I mean not only is the um i guess the you know the element of vagueness in that legislation you know tough to to deal with it's um it's the additional confusion i think in terms of what data is being fed to organizations from a cybersecurity perspective there's details coming down from asd the australian cybersecurity center uh, you know critical yeah. infrastructure it's there's um and they all say different things i mean asd you look at the essential eight um that's a list of eight things with various maturity levels um and, 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 you know, that is a bit more of a prescriptive model, but uh, it's incredibly um, basic, I'm going to say. Like there's uh, there's some really basic requirements there that really don't uh, accommodate 
um, the sophisticated needs to tackle cybersecurity today or the threat landscape. Um, so there's that issue. There's, you know, there's another, uh, you know, program that's been spun up by um, the Australian Cybersecurity Centre as well to assist critical infrastructure. Um, we've now got the uh, Red, Spice, uh, Red Spice program uh, that is, uh, has been released as well uh, to, you know, tackle the, the nation's cybersecurity um, defence. So there's just, I think there's just too much information. It's too confusing. It's, it, it's that element of not knowing where to start, which is um, why I guess the earlier um, kind of advice you provided, it's almost take it, uh, take a back to basics approach. You know, where is the sensitive data that your organization has? If, if, you know, my advice is always, where is your customer data located? Uh, and who has access to it? So let's start with that. And of course, you've got your employees as well. Um, so it's just being able to identify what's important to the organization. I think if there was that level of advice rather than, I guess, the convoluted messaging that comes out from the Australian Cybersecurity Center and the security of critical infrastructure, um, and if there was just a little bit more of a prescriptive model that kind of took a basics approach to the minimum needs that organizations should have, I think that would be a better a better starting point. Yeah, I think the Essential 8 is really interesting because it's so heavily focused on technology as well. And again, you have to have people there to manage that. Like you, you can't just put application whitelisting in place and then walk away, mm. you, you know, and, and multi-factor authentication. Like all these things that they suggest in the Essential 8 are brilliant hygiene activities, but you can't implement that and have nobody there to manage it and operate it day to day. And, you know, and that's why I say that we can't just be out there saying, oh, I can't hire an, an identity and access management analyst or, or engineer or I can't hire a GRC person. We have to make these people. We, we can't just rely on the, the graduates from university because they're not learning what they need to learn either, yeah. which is probably I mean, a podcast for another day too. But, you know, I, I feel like we're the government is relying on organisations. In answer to your question, Corrie, um, they're relying on organisations to, to make this work to work this out for themselves, I think. And, and and then they have to go and pay legal teams to work out are we are we part of this legislation or are we not? And then they also have to pay big four consultancy companies to come in and sort of pre-audit them so that when the auditors come, they know what they're gonna say. So yeah. it's it's a really big challenge. I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Claire Pales, Director of uh, the Secure Board, and Gary Savarino, Identity Strategist at Southpoint. Thank you for the conversation today. It's been it's been great. Thanks We're so done. much. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks, Corey, and thanks, uh, Claire. That was fantastic. We hope you enjoyed this Identity Inside Out Getting ID Right podcast, brought to you by Sailpoint. For more, keep tuning in to innovationoz.com forward slash podcasts or visit sailpoint.com.